0: few places on Earth more challenging to live than the southernmost continent, Antarctica, the world's highest, driest, windiest, coldest, and iciest continent. Larger than both Australia and Europe, it's one of the most isolated places on Earth, virtually uninhabited by humans, the furthest you can go from civilization without going to space.
1: Every year, a small group of people from all around the world, from multiple disciplines, many of them scientists, go to live and work on this remote desert of ice. And so, quite appropriately for our first attempt at remote recording during this COVID-19 lockdown period, we're delighted to be joined by one of this select group of scientists, meteorologist John Lowe. So, John, um, we know that you've recently returned um, from Antarctica. Uh, so, um, how how did Antarctica come about? And um, like, was this always somewhere that you wanted to go?
2: Hi, Liz. Yeah, well, it's one of those things. Antarctica, particularly for a meteorologist, is one of those places that you just desperately want to get to. And I think there's always like two groups of people. The first half look at you as if you're completely insane and can't think they anything worse to go and spend all this time in the cold and just sit there and do not much at all. And then the other half are just in awe. And it is a fantastic place to go to. And it's been one of those goals I've had uh, since like university. I had a, a friend who went off to, to Halley, the base uh, down on the ice shelf there. And just the stories from her about her experiences were just inspiring. And yeah, since then, I spent many times trying to go down there and finally got a chance to head down to Antarctica. And it was amazing, breathtaking scenery, amazing uh, wildlife, and just a a great place to live and work.
0: And John, was it your background in meteorology that kind of drew you to Antarctica or was it something else? I think,
2: as a, as a meteorologist and as someone who's concerned about the environment, Antarctica represents one of those spots that's, that's a really interesting place to live and work. There is that sense of travel and adventure that comes with living there. But I think it's really that, that experience of someone which is so extreme and so unique, which is really a driving force. But the meteorology uh, background I have is a fantastic way of getting there. There's not many people who have the opportunity to go to Antarctica. There's more than you'd think. You have plumbers, electricians, carpenters, chefs and doctors. But to be a scientist and, and working down Antarctica and to contribute a, a little bit to what's going on around the world is a, is a really good opportunity.
1: And John, you've had the chance to work in a number of locations around the world. In fact, we worked together in uh, Met service in New Zealand. That, that opportunity to work in a number of locations around the world meant that you've actually been, to, been able to get to Antarctica actually not just once, but a couple of times or maybe even three times is that correct. That's
2: right, Liz. Yeah. Um, it's my third time to Antarctica. The first time I went down with uh, the guys from Met Service in New Zealand, which is another amazing place to work. If you get a chance to go to New Zealand, it's, it's stunning. It's a lovely, lovely pot. But for the, the Kiwis, I went down to their base, Scott base, not far from the Americans, McMurdo. That's down the uh, Ross Island and got to experience not just the amazing aspect of antarctica there the wildlife and the weather but also the human side of antarctica in uh, on the ross island so places like uh, scott and shackleton's huts which are just an amazing spot to see and then i went with the the british with the british antarctic survey down to rothera and spent the winter of 2016 there and i got back in march this year after spending another winter uh, with a team back down at rothera you mentioned
0: there john the old bases of people like scott and shackleton are they still quite well preserved?
2: Well, some of the bases, in, uh, particularly on Ross Island, are amazingly well preserved. A place called Cape Evans is spectacular. You walk into the hut and after years and years of uh, restoration, it is just like walking in after the guys have left. There's a, a penguin waiting to be stuffed on the table, there's beds made up and it's, it's just amazing. There's the whole labs of uh, Simpson, the meteorologist there, and you can head up and see his Stevenson screen and as someone who's doing a very similar job, you know, years later, it's, it's quite spectacular to see there's still things that are very similar, still making weather observations, still using the Stevenson screen, still got the thermometers and still being part of that, that line of meteorologists working in the Antarctic.
1: So uh, just to get an idea of the, the geographical location of where you were working, um, you know, you're talking about Rothera and you've talked about Scott Base, but, um, Scott Base is kind of like just basically south of, of New Zealand if you just took a line down and it's it's kind of near that side. But Rothera on the other hand is just to the south of South America. Is that right?
2: That's exactly right Liz. Yes. Yeah. So if you imagine your hand as uh, Antarctica and you stick your your left hand out and you have your, your thumb and bend your fingers in, Rothera is on the curve of your thumb. So it's just there and it's just south of, uh, of say Chile and Argentina on the peninsula. And it's just south of the Antarctic Circle. If you head around the other side and fly south from Christchurch in New Zealand, if you head up down towards Ross Island. That's where Scott Base and McMurdo are based. So Christchurch on the other side of the world is a hub for people like the American program as well, which fly a lot of people down through there to the Kiwis and to the it- Italians as well. And then we fly through uh, Punta Arenas, which is a, a gateway city. In Chile, and it takes us down through the Antarctic Peninsula. It's a lot easier to get to if you're in New Zealand. It's about a five-hour flight for me. Obviously, we've got to fly from the UK, get down through to uh, Chile, and then across the peninsula. And all in all, it took me about three days before I actually landed in Antarctica.
1: And Antarctica has this like special uh, kind of international treaty in in a way. The treaty encourages like the freedom of scientific investigation and the exchange of scientific information, and they forbid these kind of um, establishing military bases and military maneuvers, and the testing of of any weapons is that is that something that inspired you when you went there? Was it um, that it's it's basically this laboratory for scientists? Uh,
2: the Antarctic Treaty is one of the most spectacular things to come out of Antarctica. It's a, a really Amazing piece of legislation that encourages cooperation across the globe. And so we have this treaty, which, as you say, keeps Antarctica for peace and for science. And it really is one of those cooperation events. And this year in Antarctica, we've had an amazing project, the Thwaites Project, which is joint between the Americans on one side and the Brits on one side, and and lots of other research institutes around the, the globe coming together to make this amazingly big program out in the middle of Antarctica. And it's that kind of cooperation which you forget is, is so important and, and just being able to share resources and knowing that although we're, we're miles and miles away from our nearest neighbors, if we do need help, we will have it. And, and uh, our friends on different stations send us emails at midwinters and we send emails to those. And it really is that, that collaborative effect. And it's one of the nicest things about Antarctica is that it is this, this cooperation and just a common goal of working together to so understand more what's going on in Antarctica and how that fits in with what's happening with the rest of the globe. It's also the Antarctic Treaty is, is a a really in, interesting thing. If you think about what's happening in space and exploring that, it's a really good kind of way to think about what are we going to do if we are going to space with the moon, with outer space. How are we going to handle the resources up there? It's a good way to kind of think about studying for science and peace and working together for that common goal. So it has gone on to influence, I think, a lot of uh, policy for global and extraterrestrial research.
0: So in terms of going to such a remote location, I mean. In the mo- the months leading up to uh, a trip to Antarctica, you must be you know preparing a lot. Is there any sort of uh, you doing a lot of, like physical training before you go?
2: Oh, that's a good question. It is. It's a long way to go, and it takes so much time to get there. And it's way before even the start of the season. So, for in our context in Antarctica, it really is normally winter starts around say May and finishes in October. So, in about October time, that's when the next lot of people start to fly down. So, at the moment, we're thinking about the next season and how things are going to happen there and getting the team together to ready to fly in October. So we've already started that and we have a big conference where everyone going to Antarctica gets together and meets up and tries to work out how we're going to fit in as a team. In terms of preparation, there are things that you need to do which you may not necessarily think about. So like, First aid. Our near, we've got a doctor at Rother, who's amazing, but it's just one doctor for in the summer, about 150 people. In the winter, there's just about 20 of you, but that one person looks after everything. So you need lots of first aid training. There's no fire team down in Antarctica. So we go on BA training courses. And you know, as a meteorologist, a lot of my instruments are halfway up a mast. So we go on climbing courses to make sure we can climb up these things safely and strap in. And so we can fix the anemometer on top of the weather mast. So there's lots of different random things that you may not necessarily need to know that you are going to do. And you have to be able to do lots of different things as well. So the station leader becomes the magistrate as well and looks after that side of things. The doctor is also the postmaster. So they go on a course to learn how to stamp their postcards and sell the stamps and those kind of things. So there's lots of different little jobs that you're not sure you're going to do, but are actually really important to keep the base running
0: is there a premium put on people who have a lot of experience in, in a lot of different areas going out there? I mean, are they looking for people who can do multiple jobs? Um, I guess it's similar to, as you were saying earlier, similar to astronauts. You know, often these guys are people who have, not only are they doctors, but they're also military pilots or something like that.
2: I think if you've got the experience, it's it's important. But one of the things that's, that's so important about going to Antarctica is that, It's a very small community. Heading down to Antarctica, it is important that you've got people who can do lots of different things, but not necessarily the best at everything, but people who are prepared to give everything a go and to participate. There's lots of things that you're going to do, which may not necessarily seem like your job. And you've got to be able to work as a team. And that's probably one of the more important things is that everyone gets on. It's really hard to think about how a community is going to come together and how people are going to get get on and, and work well together. So, you have to be a little bit more forgiving and uh, happy to just to mix in with people, and and that's one of the most important things. Is is how well do you get on? You want to make sure it's not like an episode of Big Brother. You don't want to get things to a uh, to boil over and get a bit angry. You want people to just to work well as a team, and I think that's one of the most important things about picking people to go and live down in Antarctica.
1: That's really interesting, John. I mean, it's a it's a kind of. Um like have you had different experiences now that you've done two winters was the team a little bit different um on either year did you prefer like you you know you might not want to say because they might be listening but like was there one year that you prefer them better or something like are you or was it just uh, as well the, the other thing is like did you have to go through like psychological testing did they do any rigorous kind of um you know, personality testing before you went.
2: It's a really interesting thing. I know that different programs, different nations have a different approach to the psychological testing, but at, at Bass, it's very much a case of you head in and you meet the people that you're going to be working for. And it's very much a kind of, would they like to winter with you? And would you get on with them? And there's nothing in a way of, uh, there's no tests to pass. There's no tick boxes or those kind of things. It really is generally a feeling of, of how well you're doing and it works out. Pretty well, I have to say. I've done two winters now, and sign up for that second winter. It was quite worrying. I had such an amazing time that first time in Antarctica, and there is that that worry that when you go back down the second time, is it going to be the same? Are you going to have the same experience? And obviously, you're not because the thing that makes it, it is a really big part of it are the people you're with. And I'm really lucky that both teams I've been down with were just amazing. A group, a great bunch of people who. You know, if you're going to be stuck in Antarctica, stuck for five, six months with just twenty odd people, you can pick a nicer group. It was a a really good time, and I'm really lucky and really fortunate that for both my winters, I had a really nice mix of people.
0: I'd imagine, in addition to uh, you know making sure that you're psychologically prepared, the the concern is also that you remain healthy while you're out there, right? I mean, I'm sure you probably have to undergo a fairly strict medical. I know, I know some groups. I think this is probably fairly dated now at this stage, but if you had wanted to go to Antarctica, um, they would check to see if your appendix had already been removed, because if it went while you were out there, there was no one that was going to be able to remove it for you. Now I'm sure it isn't that extreme anymore, but I'd imagine you have to sort of go through those those checkups as well.
2: It is it's amazing how uh, far away you are when you need help it's we've got the medical city we've got basmi the, the British antarctic survey's medical unit who are amazing we've got your doctor on base and they talk to the guys in plymouth and we've got an x-ray machine we've got quite a lot of things going on but you are still a long way from a hospital with lots of lots of people so your medical concerns are are a big part and so obviously you want to make sure that people who go down south are fit and healthy and there is a medical you, you go through and you don't. You do need to try and make sure you stay healthy while you're down south, and it's you're really well fed. You've got your doctor looking after you, and you just have to be aware of that. Everything you do could be just a little bit harder, and you don't push yourself quite as much. You don't do quite as many dangerous things as you, as you think you would. You perhaps just play things a little bit safer because you realise that if you do hurt yourself or if you do get injured, it's going to be a big effort to get you back to safety.
1: Were there any emergencies when you were there? That somebody had to get out really quick and you were there. You saw what happened.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things you do realize that when, once you're in Antarctica that you are a long way from home, particularly if things go wrong. And so, obviously, we take the best care we can of people, people do get sick and, and sometimes you do need to get home. And when I spent my first winter in Antarctica, so this is 2016, there was a, a Medivac needed from the South Pole in the middle of winter. So, this is June. So, the temperatures at the South Pole were around about minus 50 degrees Celsius. But we don't keep planes in Antarctica during the winter. They all fly north and they go to Canada. So, to get these people out from the South Pole, these amazing Canadian pilots flew all the way from Canada down through the Americas, down to us at Rothera. So, middle of winter, we cleared the snow off the runway. We put the lights out. We had a skirting crew of like 21 of us got the, the runway ready. And then the guys landed here, two Twin Otters, these two tiny planes, and then flew from Rothera to the South Pole in the middle of winter, pitch black. And picked up these uh, patients, threw them back to Rothera and then back to Punta Arenas. And I think in the space of 24 hours, these people were from the South Pole to a hospital in Punta Arenas. And it was only possible due to like international cooperation. So the guys in Canada, the people on, on the route down from Chile, all the uh, national agencies working together, us at Rothera, the British station, this American station at the South Pole. It's one of those things it's you don't want anything bad to happen. But when things do go wrong, you know that everyone in Antarctica lives by the Antarctic Treaty and they do work really hard to make sure that, that people can get out if they need to. So it's another one of those amazing things about cooperation is that we don't want things to go wrong. But when things do go wrong, there's a lot of people there to support you, and it's really amazing. You know, so you imagine that you're flying and you're used to landing on runways and and landed on a nice screwed surface. And you fly across and you get to the spot where you think is about right, you know. And so you you come into land and then you you drag your skis along the snow surface <laughs> just enough to kind of draw a, draw a line. And what that does is it'll highlight any crevasses or anything there. And so the pilots run down, they, they drag their skis, they trail their skis, and then they take off quickly again and fly around. And they'll look at that trail of skis to make sure things are safe to land. And then they'll land pretty much straight in those tracks as well. And, you know, the Antarctic pilots—it's—it's it's amazing, and because there's a one pilot and there's two seats at the front, one of the nicest things about being a, a, working for Bass is that you know you get to be your pilot's assistant. And so, you know, I've got no flying experience at all, but you get to sit in the front and you get to see spectacular parts of Antarctica just come by you, and it's breathtaking. It's a, an awesome experience to be able to fly a plane in Antarctica, and it's yeah, it's a really nice benefit of, uh, of the team there. But you've got to get to your field sites, and that's the best way to do it.
0: You mentioned, John, your journey to get to Antarctica. What was your first impression when you arrived there the first time?
2: So, when I first arrived in Antarctica, I flew down with the military on a C 17, which is this ginormous plane which you can fit shipping containers in and helicopters. And there was something like 150 of us on this one plane. And it's got two windows it's got a window at the front for the pilots to see out of, and it's got a tiny little porthole. For the door, and so we flew to Antarctica. We're all in our our cold weather gear. We're wrapped up in our parkas and our hats. There's no entertainment on the plane, so you literally just sat there. You kind of put your earphones in, and you just kind of fall asleep for about four or five hours. And the next thing you see is the door opens when you land on uh, an ice shelf, and you step out at at, at Pegasus Airfield out on Ross uh, Ice Shelf, and it's just it's just white and it's cold and it's it's fantastic and, and. you know, everyone's there, particularly these first timers there with a, this amazing smile on their face, and it's just unbelievable. It's it's cold, but it's so crisp. It's blue sky, and ah, oh, it's amazing. It's, it's a great experience. And because you just kind of arrive out of nowhere, it's just sensational. The last thing you saw was Christchurch, and then you end up back in Antarctica. It, it's fantastic.
0: I spent a little bit of time in, in the North, in the Arctic, and just what you're describing there, I could relate to, I remember we were getting a flight up to um, Svalbard and at that point where the plane touches down and normally no people pick up their bags and leave, whatever, everyone starts putting on all their down jackets and gloves and hats and boots. And and then you step out and it's into this total other world that, you know, just a few hours ago, you were back in civilization and it's an amazing uh, transition.
2: It is. It's it's strange that whole kind of, when you get on a commercial airfield and then you just end up in Antarctica and you know so when i arrive at Rothera you're met there and there's just the hangar with the planes in and then a tractor with a trailer and you throw your bags into that and then that's it and then you're in Antarctica and you look around there's snow covered mountains there's icebergs floating in the water nearby and it's just breathtaking and it really is a very hard thing to try and get your head around when you've been you've seen it so many times and when you go to the conference you you see these pictures of Antarctica and you think oh it's amazing it looks sensational you kind of don't expect it to look quite as good as it does. And it, it does. And then, you know, there are days when, you, you know, you're having a rough day at work and you, you head outside and the sun catches the mountains. And you think, oh, OK, it's not really that bad.
1: I can imagine, you know, it is like quite isolating. Um, like, I mean, I, I think we're all getting a taste of that right now, but um, but not, nothing in comparison to what you've experienced. But just wondering, like, what was the day to day life like there when you were there? Was, it, um, was there a daily routine?
2: It's pretty much two different seasons. So, if you can imagine it in the summertime, that's when we do a lot of the field work, and we head out to these remote field sites and we fix the weather instruments. But there's a lot of people on base. So, Rothera is a hub of pretty much the Antarctic travel for not just the uh, the British base, but there's a lot of people who fly in onto other places. So a lot of people are going to say the South Pole. The planes will fly to Rothera first, and then kind of hop. The way across towards the central parts of Antarctica. So it's a busy, a busy place in the summer, about 150, 160 people sometimes. So you can imagine there's a lot of things going on there. So in the summertime, we normally start the day around about eight o'clock and then we carry on to about smoko, which is about 10 o'clock. We have our, uh, our first break of the day in Antarctica. They're very keen on making sure you get your calories. So we have a meal pretty much every two hours. So there's smoko, there's lunch, there's afternoon smoko, which is tea and cake, and then there's dinner and we're very lucky. We've got these amazing chefs. You can do sensational things with with food that's either arrived on a ship and has been traveling for, for for months or gets flown in during the summer. But really, it's a case of between those times, anything can happen. So if you've got a day where you're heading out into the field, you've got to plan your what you're going to take with you. Because obviously, you've got a, a, a small plane, which you can fill with the instruments you need, but you can't really fly back. So you need to make sure you've got everything you need to get on that plane, get out there and do your job and then come back in. But we also are at an airport. So one of the main and important things that we do, like the airfields in Ireland, is to do weather obs so that the planes that come in and land know what's going on. So we make sure that we do the weather obs and the first ones at seven in the morning and we carry on until flying stops. And that's some days quite late. So we don't like flying in the dark. But the great thing about Antarctica in the summer is dark is really late. So sometimes it's like one, two in the morning, and the final plane just comes into land. But those um, air observations are really important in the summer. And we also do our synops. So these are the observations that get fed into the weather models, and they're every three hours. So we do those. And of course, weather balloons. The best way to start the day: head outside, launch a weather balloon, and that gives us our observations for, through the vertical slice in the atmosphere as well. So we do those during the week, so five days a week, we launch a weather balloon from Rothera, and that information then gets fed right the way back uh, up to uh, the U.K. and they enter that into the weather models. So it's a, a busy few days in the summer. And in the winter we get back down to weather balloons and the obs and getting things ready for the rest of uh, the summer.
1: So do you did you like um write the forecast halves as well for Rothra or were you just were you doing the observations and the synopses and stuff like that solely? So down
2: south my role is very much one of an observer. We have uh, forecasters on second from the UK Met Office. They fly down at the start of the summer and this year we had three of them and they um, did a, a where they managed to find out what was going on and they did the forecast. And You can imagine how hard it is to forecast for an area. Pretty much the area we operate is in the size of Europe and we've got about five or six different weather stations through there. There's no radar. The satellite pictures, we don't have the geostationary satellite pictures that like we do here where we get a picture every hour on the hour, every 15 minutes and sometimes literally the, the satellite pictures will come through perhaps every couple of hours. We might get one in the right area, but it is a lot harder to do that forecasting down there. And Sometimes you're just not quite sure how things are going to pan out. There's a lot of topography where we've got to find what's happening there. And often, if you're flying a field party out to the middle of nowhere, there's not a weather observation nearby. You have to wait until you get the party there to then send weather observations for them to, come, to come and be picked back up again. So the forecast inside of it, a whole different kettle of fish. But when I'm down there, I'm pretty much just doing the observations, making sure things are still running, adding to that long-term record that we have from Rothera, notion the weather balloons and just making sure things uh, stay up and running.
0: Do you have much time, John, when you're there um, in terms of time off, you know, time to explore a little bit or, or like, what would you do for fun when you're, when you're there?
2: Oh, we're we're really very lucky. The the Antarctic Peninsula is one of the most spectacular parts of Antarctica. It's got amazing mountains. It's got spectacular uh, coastal parts around where we are at Rothera. So in the summertime, there's some boats. You can normally find a time to head out and help with the marine scientists. If you're very lucky, you can go out and help with some of the dives as they go underneath the the water and see the spectacular scenery under the sea. Um, In the summertime, we can head out into the local area. Go for a bit of a ski as well and to generally enjoy what's there. There's a, a, a little walk. It's not far. It's about 2K. It just goes around the outside of base, but it takes you right on the other side of a hill. So you're, you're far away from anything man-made and all you've got there is looking out across towards the Antarctic Peninsula, across towards the icebergs and penguins coming through. So it's, it's spectacular. And in the summer, that's a really nice thing to do. In the winter, you pretty much have the place to yourself. So again, you can head out, do a bit of a skiing if the daylight allows. But also you've got inside, so Rotherham is, is quite a big base. So we've got a, a nice gym, which is really handy. I won't lie to you, I don't use a gym that much. I pretty much know where it is. It's very close to my office, but <laughs> if I wanted to use it, I could. There's a bit of a climbing wall you can go on as well. There's a whole load of DVDs. We've got a great library to read. And it's one of those things that you're not really sure what you did with your day, but you just know you've been very busy. I made you know a few hats and things and my knitting is definitely improving after the, a few winters down there.
1: What kind of stuff did you do um, like for Christmas? Did you have a kind of a celebration when, you, when that was going on? Or I suppose it's in the summertime as well because of the Southern Hemisphere, right?
2: That's right. Christmas is slap bang in the middle of uh, Antarctic summer. So it's a really busy time for us. The planes are flying in and out, dropping people off, picking people up, and generally trying to get summer, uh, some weather done. So this year for Christmas, I went to a place called Fossil Bluff, which is a tiny little cottage on Alexandra Island, which is the biggest island in Antarctica. And it's really just you and one other person and, and really you're a, a a petrol station for the planes that fly through. So the planes, it's about two hour flight down to to Fossil Bluff from uh from Rothra. You land there, you switch out with the people from the time before, and that's it. That's where you are for the next week. Every so often a plane might fly in and you head out there and you help fuel it up, and then you go back in, you'll do some cooking. It's just the two of you on this amazing island. And it's just that's one of my favorite places to go. So that's where I spent Christmas. The rest of the gang on base. We had turkeys and managed to get some some freshies just about flowing down. We were down to our final few potatoes, but we've got a whole supply of potatoes in just in time for Christmas. But in terms of the biggest celebration for Antarcticans, it's really mid-winters, which is around about 21st of June, where everyone on the continent kind of gets together, sends those messages of goodwill to different bases, and just enjoys it. And that's that's a real tough time for the chef because they prepare this amazing meal, and the last food delivery was like may and it's now june so you're down to your final few things you know you know make a scene what you can do you can keep potatoes and onions really well through winter you can keep eggs who knew you could keep eggs for the entirety of winter right the way through until uh, the next plane arrives in the summer but that's i think is, is pretty amazing is, is midwinter it's a, a great time we build presence for each other just get on really well listen to a broadcast from back home and just yeah it's a great time to be in antarctica
0: in addition to it being such a remote location, I mean, your, your movements are being restricted because of daylight and because of weather. So you're practicing a form of, of social isolation and, and restricted movement that, that we're all getting we're all getting used to. Are you, um, have you learned anything from that that you think is applicable to now?
2: I have to say, uh, it was really good practice being in Antarctica for coming back in, 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 during this time of self-isolation. It's one of those things that you've got to find things to keep yourself busy so projects are really helpful you know doing little things it doesn't need to be much but just making sure you can if you can get out and do your your walk a day and seeing what you can see there that's nice to get out and just try something different keeping a routine so during the winter we you know we still make sure we go to work at, at nine and we still have dinner at the same time we still make sure that we have saturdays and sundays off and it's really good to keep that routine going it just means as well that once we come out of it you're ready to get back into the normal way of life rather than just kind of leaving things too long. So routines are really important. Just uh, keeping in, checking in with everyone else. You know, uh, we have 21 of us in my first winter. And so it gets that stage where if you haven't seen someone for a few days, you're like, oh, we'll just find out what they're up to. And yeah, and board games. You can't go wrong with a bit of Scrabble.
0: Good advice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, John, Antarctica. So, like, I mean, you've, you've mentioned before there, but, but, you know, like you were observing and, you know, and doing all that stuff. It's, it's home to some of the most extreme weather on the planet. Um, the lowest like air temperature ever recorded was in Antarctica. I think it was like nearly minus 90 degrees Celsius, which is crazy. Now, like you said, Rothra doesn't get that cold. Um, but, um, like, was there any um, really extreme weather that you saw when when you when you were out there?
2: So, uh, as you say, Antarctica is pretty extreme. It's very windy. It's the windiest place. It's the coldest place. It's the driest place. It really is a continent of extremes. When I was at Rothera, we had some really, really cold times in the winter. We got down to minus thirty-two degrees Celsius, uh, just as we saw the sun start to return. So, a really cold day, cold enough that if you throw a cup of boiling water, it just instantly freezes in this amazing cloud. We did that a few wow. times just to make sure it really was. Cold. It was oh, <laughs> great. Um, but in terms of uh, extremes, also we have uh, filled. Parties, and some of the windiest weather I had was at a, a place called Sky Blue, which is a blue ice runway and the reason it's a blue ice runway is because the winds come down to strip the snow off the ice, and so the planes land on this sheer ice runway it's brilliant it's a fantastic place to get to, but it's really, really windy because of that and I was out in my tent, and you could feel the wind kind of blowing through, and then eventually just a small crack appeared in the in the tent and then finally the the tent half of the tent split up and so you end up on the other side and uh, had to dash into my next-door neighbor's tent. But it was pretty extreme to see that. <laughs> There's strong winds coming through cold. I like to make that story sound a lot more adventurous and more, more extravagant than it really was. It wasn't really as scary as that, but it's my Antarctic polar hero story and I'm sticking with it.
1: Was there any point where you couldn't, you actually couldn't do an observation? You couldn't do your job because the weather was so bad?
2: There are plenty of times. But- or did you
1: always like go out?
2: Uh, so it's always good to try and get out there. And because some of those extreme weather days are really important for observations, not just in terms of what you can see, but also those radio sounds, those weather balloons, launching them up and getting that information during the extreme days is, is really good. But you can imagine if you've got this meter sized balloon trying to get out in winds of 20, 30 knots, it's near on impossible. So you have to see what you can do and what you can't do and being safe again. It's about making sure you take the right precautions. You're in Antarctica. You don't want to do anything too silly. If you imagine that you get this nice dump of fresh snow, it's all powdery and light. It's fantastic. The next day you get this big gust of wind. It just blows in your face and it reduces your visibility. And so days you can get out there and you can't see the next building on the other side of the the courtyard. So it can be really hard and that blowing snow makes it it makes it incredibly tricky, but it can change so quickly as well. And that's the interesting thing about being down there is that the weather can be very different from day to day.
0: You've worked obviously John in a number of different regions. And I'd imagine you need to get familiar, particularly going somewhere like Antarctica, with, you know, the differences in, say, the atmospheric setup there. Or uh, I mean, what, what kind of differences are you dealing with when you look at sort of the, the broader weather setup in comparison to, say, maybe here in Western Europe and what you, the conditions you might get in Antarctica?
2: Well, The, the first thing you're, you're, I'm sure you'll remember, and Liz will know this, uh, as soon as you get to the Southern Hemisphere, things go around the other way. So your highs and lows rotate in the other direction. So that gets you to something to think about straight away, Is trying to work out how things are going on there. Um, but also, if you think about Antarctica, it's this this continent that sits at the end of the Earth, and surrounding that is this pretty much a circle of ocean, and around that you get these uninterrupted flows of low pressure. So just rotate around the continent. It's a fantastic thing to see, is to see a satellite picture and just watching these areas of low pressure spiral around and just run around the entire circumference of Antarctica. And they bring that weather and then they start to push that further north as well towards places like southern Chile and up in towards New Zealand, Australia. And so they're a really big influence on the weather for those guys as well. But so for Antarctica, for Rothera, we sit on the Antarctic Peninsula and we're on that western side. So these low pressures kind of barrel in towards us. So they can give us some pretty windy and pretty snowy weather through there as well. So that's something to watch out for. The depth of the tropopaws is also a little bit lower, so we don't get quite that depth of convection. So we don't see things like thunderstorms or cumulonimbus. So we get a bit more of you know cumulus, a bit of a bubbly cloud through there. But most of it is really very much that layered cloud rather than anything else. That's slightly different cloud formations. And you know, the occasional thing, the things like say, um atmospheric optics, you get some amazing things like uh, halos and uh uh sundogs, and just because of the ice crystals in the atmosphere, so it's really interesting to see that and things like the polar stratospheric clouds as well, way up in the stratosphere. So you don't see unless you're at those high latitudes of the Earth, a really good indication of how cold the area is up at those higher levels.
1: There's a huge variety of different scientists working in Antarctica. Did you get to hang out with with any of them and get to kind of see what they do as well? It's hard not
2: to mix with them. We're all in the same building. We're all living together. We're eating dinner together. And you pretty much, every time you sit down for a meal, you're sitting next to someone different. And it's hard not to talk about what they're doing. I mean, people are flying in to do some amazing science. And these are people who are so passionate about what they're doing. And they're really keen to share as well. So one of the best things is our Tuesday night science talks, where people come and tell you about the research that they're doing. We had an amazing project the last few years where they've been out to look for meteorites in Antarctica, which is just an amazing thing to do they literally take these skidoos out and they just drive across antarctica looking for these meteorites which and they they found like 20 or so of them and it's just an amazing place to go to find them because it's so easy to find them compared to other parts of the world it's pretty much looking for a black thing in a whole load of white and they just uh that's a fantastic project but there's biologists there's glaciologists there's um Astronomers and you know we're looking at space weather as well, looking at auroras and those kind of things, as well as meteorology. And it's also about the interaction between all of these things as well, and combining your observations at, say Rothera with the ones from the team up further up the peninsula or further across and around Antarctica. And it's is that that nice link between everything, and it, it's it's an amazing place to be because we do mix with just so many people from all over the world trying different things, and it's really interesting. There's some amazing things that you just never even considered the study and you think, wow, that's, that's fantastic. Looking at how, <laughs> say, the ice is just melting in some of the sounds and what that means and how you can see it from satellite data as well and, and big changes in that too. Um, when I left, we had a, a chap and he was looking at spectral um, images of seals so that he'd be able to fly over a plane and do like a census by looking at the output of the seals and being able to distinguish a seal from a rock, which is really hard to do when you're close to a seal. <laughs> from a plane it's really really hard so it's, it's a great thing to do but there's a lot of different things from from biology to chemistry to meteorology which is just nice to see it all work together
1: are you going to stay a meteorologist john do you think you'll do something else
2: i'm still very much keen on becoming an astronaut but i feel all like right, uh, okay. i'm getting very much to the age now <laughs> where it's not quite there but you know space is the next uh, the next place to go but i frontier. think meteorology is, is exactly exactly <laughs> but like you guys the weather is just such an interesting thing to look at it's it's amazing to be paid to look up at the sky and count clouds, and that's pretty much what my job is, is to go outside and just to to, to record it. And it is a fun place to be, and meteorology is such an interesting topic, so it's hard to, to stop being a weatherman. I think it's, uh, it's kind of, once you start, it's really, really hard to stop.
0: <laughs> I think we're hearing a lot more about Antarctica at the moment as well. I mean, there was kind of this idea that in terms of climate change, that Antarctica was so big and had so much ice that... It was going to take a long time before we'd, we'd sort of see anything that we were just scratching the surface. But I think, and I'm sure the scientists that you, that you've met and you've been talking to have been involved in this. They've seen recent studies that, um, the speed up of of Antarctic melt is is quite significant, you know, that the melt has increased something in the order of six times, even since the beginning of the nineties. And even I think during the period that you would have been there, there was a record breaking. Uh, warm temperature event in Antarctica in February. Were, were you there for that? Do you remember that?
2: I was indeed. It, it has been an incredibly warm summer. Even uh, down at Rosero, where I was as well, we saw temperatures uh, pretty much through January and February above freezing, pretty much for the entirety of those two months. A so very, very warm set of. Uh, spell of weather which has its impacts on on base life as well so if it gets to a certain level you can't get up the ramp to get across to the next weather station so we had to leave that for a time also up this this ramp of snow and ice is our backup sea of snow runway so that has a big impact on life as well so those even just this 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 summer of of warm temperatures and that record was about 18 degrees 18.3 or degrees celsius further up the coast from us that um Marambio, I think, uh, up through there, uh, an Argentinian station, but a, a really incredibly warm temperatures um, up on the Antarctic Peninsula. That is a lot further north than a lot of Antarctica. There is a lot of cold still there, but there are changes that we're seeing, particularly on that peninsula. The temperature change there has been one of the fastest rise in temperatures in the last uh, 60 years. It's, it's really ramped up through there, and that's having an impact on things like the ice shelves, the glaciers around the peninsula, and it all feeds back through as well. So there's lots of things that are going on, and trying to understand it. It is a huge continent, and there are lots of variations from region to region. But seeing how things change on the peninsula, how things change in the waters around Antarctica as well, and what it means for the rest of the continent, uh, rest of the globe as well. Because although Antarctica is so far away, particularly from us up here in the northern hemisphere. It has a big impact. There's a lot of things going on down there that will have teleconnections onto other parts of the world that will feed back into the, the thermohaline so like circulation around the oceans and and feed back into the atmosphere as well. So Big changes in Antarctica are something that we're really keeping a close eye on and that's one of the important things of, of my day-to-day observation. So, although I'm out there counting clouds and, and changing the, checking the temperature and that kind of thing, my work really is, is not so much on the research side of things. It's really just to make sure that record is kept up to date because that's how we find out about these changes. It's by looking at things and that, that gradual change and find out how things have changed over the last uh, 30, 40, 100 years and what that means for the future as well. Will you go back to Antarctica, John? Uh, I think if they'll have me, I'd love to go back. It is a an amazing it way. It's really hard to find out how you keep your real life going with the times in Antarctica. So I went down in. I think I left in October 2018, spent all of 2019 down there and I got back March of this year. So that's about 17 months down in Antarctica. Now, obviously, things have changed a fair bit here in the in the real world. So things aren't particularly uh, settled here, but it is strange to go from that transition from being in Antarctica back to the real world. Remember the things like your keys and your wallet, things you don't actually need down south. It's so hard to get back, but I would definitely go back. It's a, an amazing place to work. It's got some really important science and I think it's It's really nice to feel part of that, even a small part of being able to help and how things are going on for the future.
0: Our thanks to John for sharing his Antarctic experiences with us. We are now joined by Paul Moore, who has this month's Climate Summary. So, Paul, how's our March looking on average?
3: I know. um, Yeah, March was cool and sunny in in, um, all parts of the country and it was driest in the east. So overall, it was cooler than average by about 0.5 degrees to one degree cooler than average, and less rainfall than average apart from parts of the west and northwest.
0: And we had some fairly significant high pressure events in, in March as well, didn't we, Paul?
3: Yes, from about um, the 18th of March onwards, when the dry when the kind of dry spell started, the high pressure became the dominant feature um, across Ireland, northwest northwestern Europe. And towards the end of the month, uh, a really intense high pressure system developed between Iceland and Ireland, and gave record-breaking high pressure um, for March for Ireland in one of our northwestern um, stations, including the M4 boy. Also had a record-breaking high pressure.
0: It's quite a change from February, right? I mean, I think February we had all these storms, but I, I don't remember any storms for March. Is that right?
3: Well, Storm Jorge. Um, finished kind of at the end of February and the first day of March, Storm Jorge was pulling away to the to the, to the northeast, and it still gave the strongest gusts of the month, month for March was on the 1st of March. Um, but since then, there, um, there was some windy weather on the 12th, but um, uh, since then it, it's kind of become a bit more settled and from the 18th onwards, high pressure has really dominated our weather in March and then that continued into April.
0: Right, it's been, we've had this incredible dry period over over the last few weeks.
3: Yes, there's been um, a number of um, drought and absolute drought and dry dry spells um, recorded across the country. Pretty much since the 18th of March, we've had, say, dry spells in, in 19 of our 25 stations. Um, and then we've had absolute drought in eight of our 25 stations and partial drought in two of our 25 stations. But so an absolute drought is uh, when it's 15 days, none of which of those days has more than 0.2 a millimeter of rainfall. Uh, partial drought is 29 days or more, where the average rainfall per day is less than 0.2 millimeters. The dry spell is a period of 15 or more consecutive days, none of which is credited with one millimeter or more of rainfalls. The high pressures tended to be to the north or northeast of us over Scandinavia, which has brought in easterly winds quite a lot of the time, which has meant that the warmest conditions has been in the in the west of the country, during the day anyway. So the temperatures are quite significantly above average, especially in the west, like in the Mayo stations, they're, they're two degrees above average for April so far. Uh, whereas Dublin Airport is only 0.5 a degree above average, still above average, but because of getting a lot of easterly winds off the cool Irish Sea, it has kept the uh, the average temperature a little, a little bit lower along the east coast.
0: And earlier this month, Paul, we had the release of the European State of the Climate, uh, released by Copernicus. There were some interesting highlights in that.
3: Yes, there was um, European State of the Climate 2019 for the year 2019, shows that 2019... For surface air temperatures was the warmest year on record for Europe, for Europe. And in the in Europe, 11 of the 12 warmest years have occurred since 2000. So it's kind of just showing the upward trend in temperatures. Europe and globally has continued to rise with the rise of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere.
0: Well, that's very interesting. Uh, May thanks for joining us, Paul. Okay, thank you Noel. Talk to you next
3: month.
1: And that brings us to the end of this episode. Our thanks again to John Law for joining us this month. Thanks also to Alan Bennett at Headstuff and our colleagues in the communications team at MetAaron and at the Department of Housing, Planning and Local Government.
2: Thanks for
0: tuning in. And as always, you can find more information about today's episode on the webpage at met.ie forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast here or wherever you normally get your podcasts from. And be sure to get in touch using the MetAaron Twitter and Facebook pages using the hashtag MetAaronPodcast, or by emailing us at podcast.met.ie. At thanks for all your comments and suggestions so far.
1: We hope you join us next time, but until then, thanks for listening.
0: And take care.